Wow, well, welcome back to those of you who were here last week. We started a series all about our relationship with things like money and blessing and abundance. And as Shannon said, this is our second week together. Last week, we were looking at this thing called a pre-understanding. It's something that all of us have about a variety of different topics. Um, and a pre-understanding is a way of thinking that influences our understanding of Scripture. So we come to the Scripture with a pre-understanding of what we think God already means. And the difficulty is that when we read Scripture, it goes through that filter. And sometimes it doesn't make it through that filter. So I grew up, I was sharing last week, I grew up in Scotland in a church culture that really didn't have a high value on on money. Our, our suspicion, it's not like everybody got together in Scotland and came up with a decision, yeah, money's bad. But somehow, I ended up with this pre-understanding that, you know, if you're a Christian and you have money, you've probably compromised your character, right? And there's actually glory to not have enough but persevere. So when I'd come in and I'd read scripture, I'd be so acquainted with the verses that would seem to support that pre-understanding and either miss, gloss over, or excuse verses that would seem to contradict that pre-understanding. You with me? That's what we talked about last week a little bit. And we discovered that actually money isn't really the problem. Rather, it's our relationship with it. We get into danger when we shift our security away from being with the Lord Jesus Christ to feeling secure depending on how much or how little money we have. All right, so like money in one sense is a good barometer of how much faith we have in God. That's a horrible way of thinking of it, isn't it? But it's true. Like we do, we tend to feel like we're more secure when we have money than when we don't. If so, our trust might be in the wrong place. And then last of all, I set you some homework last week, which I got some great feedback on. Not being from America, I forgot the bounty is paper towel. Right? So, Bounty to me and to Ian and Karen is a delicious coconut bar. You know an Almond Joy? Of course you are, right? So they're like Almond Joy but better because they don't have that little almond on top which spoils the whole delight. So, so for all the people who are listening online from Scotland, they sent me all these bounty memes for everybody here. It was paper towel memes. But I was talking about, hey, like, what do you think about this stuff? And I have to say, I so loved, for those of you who engaged with me on social media this week and or just giving me feedback and saying, hey, this is what shows up for me when I think about money. So beautiful, so rich, so tender to be a part of your journey. This week, what I'm going to start with is arguably the least controversial thing I will say all day. In fact, I'm so confident that when I show you this verse next, whether you're watching online, which good morning if you are, or whether you're in the room, I'm fully expecting that everybody can give a hearty amen to this verse. Are you ready? I'm going to test my confidence in your amening ability. It's found in Psalm 32. It's David. And this is what he says. He says, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Oh, like, but seriously, that's such a weighty piece of scripture this morning for us to sink our teeth into. Do you hear the satisfaction and the groaning of our hearts as we're reminded of what we've been given? And in David, when he says this, undoubtedly the greatest blessing 
that you and I will ever experience is the forgiveness of sin and being made right with God. Any discussion of blessing without the discussion of salvation has missed the point of both blessing and salvation. And so I want to camp out here for a second and remind ourselves of the truth that whether we have much, whether we have little, if we have Jesus Christ, we have a blessing that is unparalleled in nature. The Apostle Paul agreed with this Psalm of David and he actually quoted him in Romans chapter 4 verse 8. He condensed it a little bit, but blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. If you read the book of Romans, I mean, Paul is one of my favorite, favorite people. He's just brilliant. Trained as a legal expert, a, a clearly an excellent thinker, can lay precept upon precept. If you read the book of Romans, it's 16 chapters long. And the first eight chapters, the first half of the book, Paul takes great pains to explain to an audience, a dual audience, both Jews and Gentiles, why salvation is the ultimate expression of blessing. And then we get to Romans 8, where the Apostle Paul opens with this really famous statement. And he says, therefore, having summed up the first seven chapters, building his case, gets to chapter 8, says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, thank you, Lord. Through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. If you hear nothing else today, in fact, if you hear nothing else in the the whole four weeks of this series, please hear this. There is a gift available today because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And that gift is the forgiveness of sin and being set free from a life of sin without condemnation. There is something beautiful that I, I think there's a danger that the longer we walk with the Lord, the easier it is to take for granted how good it is to live at peace with God. Oh, it's so good and it's so glorious. This, in the center of Paul's writing, 16 chapters, Right in the middle is the pinnacle of blessing. That you and I can be free from sin and be given the gift of eternal life. Now here's what I want to do. I'm telling you all of this because Paul's leading to something that is albeit incidental, but it's very important for our discussion on blessing. But before I show you that, let me, understand, let me explain. It's incidental in the larger volume of what he's writing in the book of Romans, but it's really pertinent for our discussion today. But before I show you that, I want to rewind in Scripture, and we're going to go back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 28 is where we're going to start in a second. I'll give you some context. In the passage that we're going to read, the larger context is God has just rescued his people from, not just, number of years ago. He has rescued his people from Israel. They've been wandering around the desert. They've been promised something called the promised land, and he's about to take them into it. Okay, so that's where we are in Israel's history. God gathers them, and I want you to see the heart of God as he's preparing his people for a new way of living. One generation, all they've known is slavery. Another generation, all they've known is not lack in a sense that they were provided for in the desert, but sand and manna gets old. Amen? How many of you know you can have provision, but it's not fulfilling? Right? 
Big difference. Save that for later, all right? So this is where he is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you some verses from Deuteronomy 26. Our text will be Deuteronomy 28. But verse 16 of Deuteronomy 26, it says this, Today the Lord your God has commanded you to obey all these decrees and regulations. So be careful to obey them wholeheartedly. You've declared today that the Lord is your God and you've promised to walk in his ways and to obey his decrees, his commands, his regulations and to do everything he tells you. Verse 18, the Lord has declared today that you are his people, his own special treasure, just as he promised and that you must obey all his commands. And if you do, he will set you high above all the other nations he's made and then you will receive praise, honor and renown. You will be a nation that is holy to the Lord your God, just as he promised. The context of everything we're about to read is this, right? Hey, it's my heart as your God to make it easy for people to distinguish between their life and your life. And I'm going to do something so special for you. If you obey me, that your life is going to be marked by praise and honor and renown. Now that's kind of weird, right? Because praise, honor, and renown are things that are usually reserved for God. We send them that way. And yet in this passage, you see God going, no, 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 you're my special treasure. I want your life to be marked by praise, honor, and renown. See, he's so upfront with them. He's telling them, this is my heart. All I require of you is that you choose to agree with me. And if you do, it would be my pleasure to do this for you because you are my special treasure. And if you don't, then it's going to be curses, but it's your choice. Now, before we jump into Deuteronomy 28, before we look at the content, I want you to look at the structure. Now, stay with me. I've broken up Deuteronomy 28, the first 13 verses, into four sections. Because it's an astonishing conversation between the Lord and his people. It begins with a kind of like, brace yourself, people. Right? This is why we're here. This is what we're here to talk about. He starts with that. And then God goes on and he gives them eight blessings. This is what I'm going to do for you. Now, for those of you who are worried that your eyesight has gone, you haven't. I just want you to see structure before we see content. After those eight blessings, there's a breather, kind of like the Lord gives them some space. Because I'll be honest with you, the first eight are overwhelming. For those of you who are worried that we're a prosperity gospel church, oh, it's so much worse than that. Okay? And you're going to hear, I'm not quoting Joel Osteen this morning. I'm quoting the scripture of God. Or I'm quoting Joel Osteen quoting the scripture of God, all right? Because Joel has got a great grasp on the goodness of God. But the Lord gives them a breather because I'm telling you, this is confrontational. You're all about to be confronted by the goodness of God. And then, not, not content with that, he gives them another eight blessings. And I want you to hold intention as you listen to this. None of this is the people's idea, it's God's idea. He's pitching it to them. So let's jump in. Verse 1 of Deuteronomy 28. If you will fully obey the Lord your God and carefully keep all his commands that I'm giving you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the world. You will experience all these blessings if you obey the Lord your God. So the Lord up front is like, guys, this is what I would love to do for you. 
Did you know, however, that God's blessings are to be experienced? They're not to be debated. They're there to be experienced. In fact, I suspect there would be much less debate if there was far more experience. See, God has an expectation that the lives of his children would be marked by something. That they would, we would have an upgraded measure of peace, an upgraded measure of joy, and an upgraded measure of provision attached to it. Now, if you were here last week, you'll remember I set you some homework and one of the questions I asked was, hey, would you, like upon reflection, would you consider your life to be blessed? And I put in that sneaky that sneaky bit, because most of us are going to say yes, because we've been taught better than to grumble and complain. Right? So knee-jerk reaction as Christians. Yeah, blessed and highly favored among the Lord's people. Hallelujah. Amen. And it's an automatic reaction. We haven't even thought. Because here's the thing, whether you think about it or not, your heart murmurs and the Lord hears. So I want to ask you, by whose definition? And some of you might rightly say, I, I actually don't know what the Lord's definition of blessed I'm about to blow your mind, okay? Because here is a great place to start to pay attention to what the Lord has in mind when he thinks of blessing his people. Here's the first date. Your towns and your fields will be blessed. Your children and your crops will be blessed. The offspring of your herds and flocks will be blessed. Your fruit baskets and breadboards will be blessed. Wherever you go and whatever you do, you will be blessed. The Lord will conquer your enemies when they attack you. They will attack you from one direction, but they will scatter from you in seven. The Lord will guarantee a blessing on everything you do and will fill your storehouses with grain. The Lord your God will bless you in the land he is giving you. See, most of us, when we read this, it's somewhat detached from us. Because most of us don't have flocks or herds, or fruit baskets, or breadboards, or storehouses that we keep grain in. But understand, everything the Lord's talking to there is about their handiwork, their provision, their sustenance, their current account, their savings account, so to speak. And what God is saying in those eight things is, I am going to add my supernatural attraction to whatever you do. Alan, surely not. Look, number five, wherever you go and whatever you do, you will be blessed. Look at the heart of God in these verses. He is so for his people to succeed. Over the years that I've taught on blessings... It's kind of strange, if you think about it, that I experience such resistance over the simple truth that God wants things to go well for his people. But I remember feeling that too. I remember a season of my life where the Lord had to literally wrestle me to the ground and convince me that it was his will for me to succeed. Now, why did he have such a fight on his hands? Because of my pre-understanding. Didn't know I had it till he started confronting me with his truth. See, I lived under this strange lie that success will only lead to arrogance. 
Arrogance to sin, sin to downfall. So it's better that you just keep your head down and be quietly victorious, which sounds way more noble than successful. Am I right? But completely contrary to God's plan. Sometimes the wrestle is between God's plan and our shame. Because it's not nobility I'm worried about. It's the shame that other people might think I'm too big for my boots. And And so I start retreating. None of you have ever done that based on your faces. You're all spiritual giants, content, it's onward and upward. But that has been a real wrestle for me. Now, if you're looking for a breather, God already knew that because look at verse 9 and 10. If you obey the commands of the Lord your God, he's just reiterating what he said many times, and walk in his ways, the Lord will establish you as his holy people as he swore he would do. Then all the nations of the world will see that you are a people claimed by the Lord, and they will stand in awe of you. Now you're going to think I'm being flippant by asking that. I'm not. I'm just treating the text with respect. When was the last time someone was in awe of you because of what God was doing through you or what God had done for you? I'm so serious right now. Because this is the benchmark God has for us. Like I'm going to be so good to you that when people experience secondhand the goodnesses on your life, they're going to be in awe. When, were you, when was the last time people were in disbelief over a testimony that you shared? But it gets so much worse or better, depending on your comfort level. Because look at the next eight. The Lord will give you prosperity in the land. He swore to your ancestors, blessing you with many children Numerous livestock and abundant crops. The Lord will send rain at the proper time from his rich treasure in the heavens and will bless all the work that you do. You will lend to many nations, but you will never need to borrow from them. The Lord will make you the head and not the tail, and you will always be on top and never at the bottom. You know, as we read this passage... And I'd encourage you, go home, read it. Let it marinate in you. Let it chew on it, right? Just, ah, oh, like just savor it. Allow it to do its work in you because the word of God is alive and it's sharper than a two-edged sword. Stuff will happen to you when you read this. It will confront you. It will challenge you. It will excite you. It will give you a new appetite. I encourage you to do that this week. But as I was sitting with this text and chewing it over and thinking about it, three things became apparent to me. The first thing is, did you notice that all of this blessing was God's idea? It was all his initiative. It was his preference, his desire, and he's asking the people to buy into his vision for their life. Did you notice how many of the blessings were intensely tangible? What I mean by that is the blessings were things you could see, touch, things you could experience as contrary to blessings that were airy, fairy, pie in the sky, things that we just see, but doesn't have the grit and the reality in everyday life. If you noticed that, now would be a good time to say, yeah, yeah, I did. (laughs) Number three, even though it was God's will, do you understand he still gave them a choice? 
They could have said yes, they could have said no. And as we read through history, as we read through Scripture, we understand that they said no a lot more than they said yes. Here's another thing that stood out to me. Is all of these blessings were under an inferior covenant. Hebrews 7.22 says that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. Those blessings were conditional on performance. Now some of you probably already see where I was going. We started in Romans and I'm talking about how Paul has painstakingly talked about the blessing and the inheritance he wants for God's people to experience. And I paused for a little bit and I jumped back to this list of eight. We're now going to jump back. Now remember, Paul has been labor intensive explaining to the readers of his letter how utterly amazing salvation is. But if we keep reading in chapter 8, we come to this verse, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Now pay attention to the order. God, who didn't spare his own son, gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, that's Jesus, graciously give us all things? Now there's so much to unpack in this one tiny verse. First of all, when did he not spare his own son? Early in Romans, in Romans 5, Paul says, it was while we were still God's enemies. If this is the way that God chooses to bless his enemies... By giving up his son, what's the favor we can expect when we're his sons and daughters? Hold on to that tension for a second, because we're going to revisit in a couple of slides. Second of all, Paul's already taken great pains, eight chapters of it, right? To thoroughly establish that the preeminent blessing from God is being made right with him through Jesus Christ. And to be clear, if that were all that God had decided to do, forgive our sins. And it sounds scandalous that I even say that, that I'd put a limiting thing like all he did. It's astonishing, but if that was all that God did, was he made us right with him and, and then never spoke to us again, all of our praise, our energy and our passion for him and honoring him for doing just that, for eternity, would never be able to repay that debt. You understand that? And so Paul's making that really, really clear, that the gift is astonishing. And Paul points out, yeah, the gift of his own son got us the blessing of salvation. But given that's been done out of his generous abundance, won't he also, along with Jesus, go on and give us all things? Let me be emphatic. And with my last emphasis on this, trust that you've heard me say something that I'm about to say so that I can focus on saying other things this morning. Everything we receive from God, children, grandchildren, good health, Apple products, (laughs) anything, all of it pales into comparison to the sacrifice of the sinless, matchless Son of God. And yet Paul points out he's still going to give us those things anyway. 
Now turn with me to Romans 8, sorry, Romans 11, I beg your pardon. The chapter of Romans 11, Paul is writing to the Gentile believers. Okay, Gentile believers are believers who are not Jewish in their, in their, uh, in their heritage. And he's explaining to them the salvation of the Jews. He's talking to them about like, hey, that God has not abandoned the Jews. He's still for the Jews. But you Gentiles, you get in on all of the blessing I've been talking about. You get in on the good news too. Look at what Paul writes in verse 17. And I'm reading here from the New Living Translation. He says, so now you also receive the blessing God has promised Abraham and his children, sharing in the rich nourishment from the root of God's special olive tree. The the special olive tree is the Jews. Where is the promise of blessing that we just read together in Deuteronomy was conditional on their behavior and their performance and obedience to the law. Paul writes, so God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Paul's trying to point out to us that God did the smartest thing he could do. The Jews, God's people, the Old Testament tells us they fail time and time and time after time. And so God did the smartest thing he could do. He put us in Christ and in doing so, we receive the blessing God has promised Abraham and his children. And some of those blessings we read about in Deuteronomy. You all good? Now, it's important that we honor the text and the context of the passages that we're reading. And to be clear, Paul is absolutely talking about the promise of salvation in these chapters, which we've already talked about is the greatest blessing of all. But we are in danger of dishonoring the larger context of Scripture if we solely make blessing about salvation. Now, study of Scripture reveals that blessing not only includes everything we read about in the passages in Deuteronomy, but also things like gaining wisdom and understanding from the book of Proverbs. This is what it says, Proverbs 3.13. Or how about gaining wealth without painful toil? Or living debt-free, as Deuteronomy 15.6 says. Or having sickness removed from us. Or living with success. Now, if a shiver just went down your spine that a pastor said, God wants you to have success, hold that thought because we're going to discuss it in depth in a moment. But for now, let me throw you this. Deuteronomy 12 verse 7 says, You and your families shall rejoice in everything you've put your hand to because the Lord your God has blessed you. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever hesitated on making a decision? Because you're worried it's not going to turn out well. How much energy have we spent worrying about something that God has already decreed an answer for? And then just to top it all off, Genesis 26 verse 12 talks about unusual multiplication of investments. Now here's the bit, we've done the deep mining of scripture. Let's stop for a second and unpack some of this. 
I get, seriously, I get why people don't want to give serious treatment to the manifestations of God's blessing. By manifestations, I mean the practical outworking, the nitty gritty of blessing like these verses point to. I understand why people are reluctant to do that. It's much less controversial for us when we treat blessing as a purely spiritual thing. But I don't think we do God's word any service when we gloss over our discomfort to make blessing only mean salvation. Last week, I talked about how blessing is not synonymous with money, but we actually have to acknowledge that money is included in blessing. This week, I'm making the same argument from a different side. Of course, blessing includes salvation. Salvation is the greatest blessing we can have, but it's unfair biblically to limit blessing to solely mean salvation. Alan, why are you doing that? Because in order to teach us how to walk into blessing, we have to have parameters to know what we're aiming at. You with me? As I've studied this topic, I've given great thought to why there's such a fight in evangelical circles to ensure the blessing remains spiritual in nature and doesn't bleed over into the tangible, lay, tangible ways listed in the passages that we've looked at this morning. And I think the number one reason for that fight is if we actually take Scripture at face value, it exposes the lack in our lives. It's okay to sigh, cough nervously, I'm very serious. When we make blessing purely spiritual, I have a suspicion that we like that because we can't quantify it. And therefore, it's a great safety net. Why is it a great safety net? Because we can never be disappointed. If we just think that God's blessings are going to be ethereal in nature, then we've got no right to be upset when we're not experiencing the practical aspects of it. But if we take it seriously and think, okay, God, are you serious here? You actually want to bless me in these ways? And we look around our life and we don't have it. Ooh, that's hard to work out. How many of you have experienced in Christian community where you greet somebody and the words they say sound true, but they don't feel true? Hey, how are you doing? I'm blessed and highly favored among all the Lord's people. And you're like, are you? Are you though? Because I hear you saying that, but your general vibe and the energy you're giving off and your social media posts and the conversations I've been hearing you have would suggest you're not. But we do that, don't we? We're like, hallelujah, praise God, my life's in the toilet, but praise God. Constant supply of fresh running water. Pull that lever and it's amazing. It's refreshing almost. I love it. Porcelain feels so good. Now, Alan, are you saying that we shouldn't praise God when our life is in the toilet? No, we are to praise God continually. You know, and it's false Christian advertising to say, you know, trust in Jesus and your life is plain sailing. Because it's not. In this world, you will have trouble. And there's the paradox. We have trouble. And in the midst of trouble, there's abundance and blessing to be found. My point is, God hasn't designed your life to be lived in a toilet. So stop trying to glorify a situation that he's paid to get you out of. 
How does diluting what God has promised us so that we don't feel bad about what we don't have bring glory to either him or his word? I mentioned this last week. We've got to be careful that we're not using the word of God, that we're not using our experience to nullify the word of God, but rather we're using the word of God to raise the bar of what we can expect of life in the spirit. So let me ask you this. What takes more faith to believe? To believe that God has blessed us in the spiritual realms with every spiritual blessing? Or to believe that the blessing of the Lord brings wealth without painful toil for it? I mean, we're to be people of equal opportunity lovers of all scripture, right? All scripture is God breathed and is useful and for instructing and training the ways of righteousness, amen? But which verse is easier to believe? Both speak about blessing. Shouldn't it take the same level of faith to believe both verses? But this is where our pre-understanding kicks in. Let me ask you the question in a different way. Which verse is easier to live out? The first or the second? I think the first verse is easier to live out if I'm honest. Because it's so nebulous, we can't possibly do it wrong. Like, how, how are you? I'm blessed and highly favored among the Lord's people. I'm blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. What does that mean? I don't know, but it sounds great. I've got a cross stitched on a pillow and it's on a fridge magnet and a bumper sticker. Hallelujah! And so we quote it, which we should, but the verses aren't there for merely quoting, but for living. And if we don't know what it means, why are we claiming it as our truth? But note, this verse can't be debated. Because there's nothing we can point to that demonstrates whether we are or aren't blessed with every spiritual blessing. And there's so much comfort in that. But this verse, this verse has got some working out to it. The blessing of the Lord brings wealth without painful toil for it. Because we kind of know what painful toil feels like and we kind of know what wealth looks like. We might be acquainted with one, but not the other. So then what do we do with a verse like that? Oh, it's for those days and those times. You're willing to throw out the whole book of Proverbs? Because one verse makes you uncomfortable? So we have to do something with it. See, the first one is like pie in the sky. It's spiritual, it's great. But the second one, we've got way less wiggle room. Now remember earlier when we were reading Paul's teaching and I said, hey, there's a tension in that, hold on to that. Let's talk about that for a second. Paul says, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? It's ironic that we struggle with receiving blessing in material form but don't stumble over the blessing of salvation that costs God everything, namely his precious son. Paul points out that everything else is just gravy compared to Jesus. And yet we struggle with one and breeze past the other. There is a danger that we've started massaging the word blessing into something more palatable. And my question is, why are we reducing what God wants to do for us 
to make us feel more comfortable when he's already offered us a way of being more comfortable, which is to believe his word. As you read about God rescuing his people from Egypt, he's got the 12 tribes and he's promised them the promised land. And shortly before they cross over the river into the promised land, there's a, there's a tribe, maybe there's two tribes. Forgive me, I didn't look this up, it just popped in my head. It's definitely one tribe. And they say, oh, this is good. We're going to stop here. And Moses is like, are you kidding me? Like the promised land is right there on the other side. They're like, yeah, we got it, but we'll settle here. And Moses is like, you can have that if you want, but you're still on the hook for helping the other tribes go in and take the promised land. Yep, got that. And even after all the work, you're still going to settle here? Yeah, yeah, we're good. Sometimes good is the worst enemy of best. Sometimes our good and comfortable theology keeps us in bondage, but we don't recognize it because it's actually more comfortable than risking for something God is promising. As evangelicals, we often do this with healing too. Pastor Jeff's been teaching us for years about this. That there's a danger that we lower the standard of the word of God with regard to physical healing to match what we've come to expect. And I'll be honest, it poses way less, less pastoral burden to make the word of God match our experience rather than allow the word of God to define our experience. I once heard Randy Clark say, evangelicism is a culture of doubt. And when it comes to both healing and blessing, I'm inclined to agree. It's a very common reaction to the power of God. To kind of make it more manageable. To make it fit our current comfort level. See, our lack becomes acutely uncomfortable in his abundance. But my encouragement to you today is God draws near to absorb our lack, not highlight it. And if we don't understand that, we're always going to be more comfortable with less than what God has to offer. Which brings us to the question that so many of you are beginning to formulate in your head right now. And it probably sounds something like this. Alan, if all of this is true, why does my life not look like this? And that's the very question we're going to tackle next week. (laughs) Listen, it would be criminally, it would be criminal. It would be spiritually negligent if we don't stop and discuss this. It's not enough that I point and say this is the pinnacle of blessing without creating space for you to experience the pinnacle of that blessing. Paul writes, blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. And that's the message that we live for and preach in this house. That God wants sons and daughters. He's longing for them. And the thing that prevents us from having connection, relationship, goodness and gladness with the creator of the world is the moral debt we've accrued through life that the Bible calls sin. We've all done, said, thought wrong things. Things that are contrary. And despite our best efforts to numb the consequence of that, we live with something called conviction and condemnation. 
And we all know that no amount of alcohol will numb that. No amount of drugs will silence that voice. But there is an offer from heaven today. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never account against them. Jesus Christ died on a cross to pay the debt for the sin that we've accrued. And when we admit that, when we recognize that, when we say yes to the offer of the forgiveness of our sins, the critic's voice is silenced. We live at peace with God and we enter into eternal life. In the same way that you saw God in Genesis and Deuteronomy 28, have this beautiful plan for his people. He still let the people say, yes, I went in on that plan. And it's the same with the gift of salvation today. So many of us in this room have already prayed that. But you might be here today, you might be listening and you've never prayed that. I've got great news for you. The Bible says that his mercies are new every morning. Even if you screwed up colossally last night, today, there's a vat of mercy waiting for you. It's called the forgiveness of sin. And all you need to do is accept his kind offers. Here's what I'd love us to do. I'd love us to close our eyes, bow our head, pretend we're in church. Oh, wait, we are. (laughs) The reason I want you to bow your head and close your eyes is it's a vulnerable thing to admit that you're wrong, but it's the first step to salvation. And so I want to speak to every heart today. All you need to do to be born again, to have the forgiveness of sins and be given the gift of peace with God and eternal life is say, I believe what you're saying, Alan. I believe that Jesus died on the cross and I'm in need of a sinner. I'm in need of a savior. I need saving. Lord, would you pay for the moral debt that I've accrued? And just in you agreeing with that and you saying, yeah, you're talking about me like that. He's so eager to bless you. He's so eager to save you. That's all that it takes. Now, if you said that and you're in this room, if you said that, if you're online, if, you, if you're in this room, would you raise your hand just so I can pray for you this morning? Thank you. Thank you. Let me pray for you right now. Lord Jesus, I thank you for these who've given their, their lives to you this morning, Lord, who've confessed their need for a savior. And Lord, we are so grateful, Lord, and may we never take for granted the pinnacle of blessing which is being made right with you. Lord, I thank you that you love us, that you're planning our good, that you've stored up great treasures for us in heaven and you're willing to share them with us now on earth. Lord, we thank you, we bless you and we honor you in Jesus' name, amen. We have a ministry team this morning. Pastor Shannon's gonna come up and tell us about them in a second. But if you prayed that prayer this morning, if you gave your life to Jesus, please come just to this aisle. So many people will be coming to this aisle, but our ministry team would love to bless you. They would love to pray for the Holy Spirit to fill you. And so please don't leave without doing that. Pastor Shannon, would you come up and tell us what we need to do?